0: What really what drove me into jazz was pop music back in the thirties. I studied classical piano when I was eight, nine, ten years old and, and uh, playing things like Lieberstraum and I used to sing. I wanna go back to my little grass shack in Kiala, Hawaii, you know. My mother used to play a little piano. She wasn't very good, but she could read sheet music. But I always wanted to accompany myself. So I started taking pop piano lessons, which turned into jazz piano lessons. And then I started listening to jazz, and my brother would bring home records. I remember he bought a, uh, a record play that had 13 Bluebird records with buying the record player. And I mean, those records were Louis Armstrong, Saint Go and In, and uh, Jimmy Lunsford, White Heat, and all these jazz records. And that's where I got the message.
1: That was the great jazz impresario and a two thousand and five NEA jazz master, George Ween. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Although George Ween has been displaying his chops as a jazz pianist since he was a teenager, the 87-year-old is known primarily as jazz's leading impresario. In 1950, straight out of college, he opened a jazz club in Boston called Storyville. There he booked most of the leading jazz musicians and went on to establish a Storyville record label. In 1954, he literally invented the idea of an outdoor jazz festival when he launched the first one ever held in the United States at Newport. And the Newport Jazz Festival went on to become an annual tradition. Ween went on to start a number of festivals in other cities most notably the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival, known to all as Jazz Fest. Branching out a bit, he also established the now annual Newport Folk Festival. His company, Festival Productions, also ran large-scale jazz events in cities around the world, including Paris and Tokyo. In 2007, at the age of 81, Ween decided to take a break and sold his production company. But two years later, when the successor company was headed for bankruptcy, Wien jumped back in the game. He was determined that his jazz and folk festivals live on. To that end, in 2010, he founded the Newport Festivals Foundation, a not-for-profit whose mission is keeping the Newport Jazz and Folk Festivals financially viable and musically vibrant. George Wien has received many honors for his work. Let me just highlight a few. He's been honored at the White House by two American presidents, Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton. The Association of Performing Arts Presenters, or APAP, presented him with the Award of Merit for Achievement in Performing Arts. And of course, he's been an NEA Jazz Master since 2005. I met George Wein in his New York City apartment the week of the 2012 NEA Jazz Masters Award Ceremony. And I asked him to tell me a bit more about learning to play jazz
0: piano as a teenager. I started listening to small band jazz and collecting records, and then I started to play more, and, and um, this magical thing known as imp- improvisation, how did you do that? And Then you learn how to do that, and then you, that's the rest of your life. I was locked in, and I organized my own band when I was 15, 16. I was like when a kid with a rock band, except I had three trumpets and two trombones and four saxophones and a drum, bass, guitar, my cellar. My house in Newton, Massachusetts. And we were playing in the mood and the tuxedo junction and all those arrangements of the big band. And it was same thing as a kid in a rock band in his garage band now. you know, and and uh, that's where I learned. Do you remember the first
1: jazz concert or or club or just live performance you saw?
0: I don't know that I remember the first, but I know that I used to go very at a very young age to uh, hear Cab Calloway's band at the Southland in Boston, and that's a band that had Cozy Cole on the drums, and Dizzy Gillespie was on trumpet. I remember the first time I heard Duke Ellington. Oh, tell me about it. I knew, of course, how important Duke was. I'd heard some of his records, but to hear him live, and I didn't know the guys in the band, uh, and when Johnny Hodges stood up and played, I... I Felt goose flesh all over me as that sound. He wasn't even playing an Ellington tune, he was playing a tune called Whispering Grass. But when that beautiful alto came into my heart and my psyche, that changed me forever. You know, these things last with you till the rest of your life. You played professionally for a while, didn't you? Well, I still do to a degree. I mean, I've been playing this year more than I have in the past few years. I love to play. But I started, while I was in college, I came out of the army and went back into, you know, went to school, I went to Boston University. And while I was at Boston University, they needed a piano player for Maxie Kaminsky and Pee Wee Russell and Mole, three famous legendary figures. And they needed a piano player. And I was one that that was known, and they taught me the Dixieland tunes. And I I was working six weeks with them. Seven days and Sunday afternoon while I was going to college, I never thought I'd be a piano player. I'd been playing all these years, but, I mean, I was still a student, and, and uh, somebody said, open your own club. Of course, I'd been working in clubs in Boston, and a lawyer said to me, you know, he thought that I had, you know, a head for business, which I really didn't, but I at least understood that if you spent $10, you had to take in 11 that I did understand. So I leased a room from a hotel, and I started off with the same kind of music I'd been playing. at had Bob Wilbur and his band. But then somebody called me from an agency and said, why don't you use George Shearing? I didn't even know what George Shearing was doing, but uh, he had a big record called Jumpin' with Symphony Sid and Lullaby of Birdland and, and September in the Rain. And I put a little ad in the paper, George Shearing, I was paying him a lot of money, $2,500 a week. I'd never paid more than 900 or $2,000 a week for a band, you know. Next thing I know, the place was absolutely packed, sold out. It's for eight days, sold out. And I guess that's when I realized that I might be a promoter the rest of my life. Where did the name Storyville come from? Well, That's the history of jazz. Storyville was the red light district in New Orleans and was named after Alderman Story in New Orleans who wanted to relegate all the sin to one section of the city. And that's where Lulu White's Mahogany Hall and all those, all those fabled and mythical names that weren't so mythical, those names came from in the history of jazz. And, and so they rewarded all of them in story by naming this section of the city after him. They called it Storyville. And I just called it Storyville, the birthplace of jazz. That was what the name of my club was, Storyville. George Wien's Storyville. I always put my own name in there. I don't know why. I guess because I like to see my name in the paper. And since I was paying for the ad, I could put my name in the paper. George Wien's Storyville, the birthplace of jazz. Then one day, uh, Sid Catlett was playing drums with Bob Wilber. And Louis Armstrong had a concert at Symphony Hall with the, his all-star group, Cozy Cole and Bonnie Bigard and Jack Teagarden, Earl Father Hines, all the greatest names in jazz. And I gave Sid, who had played with Louis, said, you go down to Symphony Hall and get those guys coming back to the club. And I'll never forget this night as long as I live. One by one, the guys came in. And Sid, as they walked in the door, Sid brought them to the stand. And here comes Bonnie Bigard, and he walked right up on the stage, started to play. And here's old Father Hines. And he walks, goes to the piano and sits. It was a small room. They'd come in the back and he was up the front. And the last one to come in was Louis Armstrong. He walked right to the stage. It was like it was rehearsed. It wasn't. And he sang Sleepy Time down south. All the fair moon shining, the fields below. Darkest is songs, all they you needn't tell me, boy, because I know It's sleepy time down south mm-hmm. The soft wind blowing through the pinewood trees folks oh, down there live a life of ease When old mammy falls upon her knees It's sleepy time down south oh. And the electricity in Sleep that room was so incredible that I said, this this is what I have to do. I have to be associated with the great people. And that's what directed my life.
1: You played there with Lester Young. You played the piano with
0: Lester Young. Tell us that story. That's one of the funniest stories. I had a lot of chutzpah saying I was going to play with Lester. I loved the Basie style and the and the swing era, I hadn't. I'm not. Not a. I'm still not a bebop player. I play more modern than I used to. You know, I played sort of a simple bassy, Teddy Wilson style of piano playing. Lester had great piano players that played with him in the previous eight or ten years of his life, but they'd all been bebop piano players. So I put together a band with Buck Clayton on trumpet, who played with Prez in the old Basie band, and I uh, had a good bass player and a drummer. So Prez came in and by himself, and was we sitting, talking, and, uh, and he says, who's going to be on trumpet, Prez? He would call me Prez, because I was the boss. I said, Buck Clayton, oh, Lady Clayton, that's fine, man, you know, and I said, Marcus Faust and something. Who's going to be on piano, Prez? Well, I'm going to be on piano, Prez. You're going to be on piano, Prez? And this conversation went on like that. And I, well, I know your tunes, Prez. Well, cool, Prez. So we get on the stage, he won't get on the stage. I said, what do you want to play, Press? Whatever your feelings, Press. I said, well, how about Pennies from Heaven? He said, that's cool, Press. I said, well, what key? Whatever your feelings, Press. You know, and that, this, he wouldn't get on the stage. And I said, what tempo? As you wish, Press. You know, so I started playing. I played a chorus, and I said, you Press? you have another helping, Press. I had to play four choruses. After I played four choruses, Prez picked up his horn and came on the stage and said, w- you and I are going to be opera, all, all right, Prez, you know. And my heart just went like this. I said, thank God. High so, praise indeed. I mean, you know, uh, I had a lot of guts. I wasn't that good a piano player. But I did know how to comp for him and play simply not getting his way. And then we had a ball. You played with Charlie Parker in Storyville, too. I just did one number with Charlie Parker. I had the Mahogany Hall All-Stars downstairs. We had two clubs, Mahogany Hall and Storyville. And the Mahogany Hall had traditional jazz, and the Storyville had, at that time, you know, more contemporary music. And so Sunday afternoon, we'd have jam sessions, so Bird was playing upstairs, so I asked Bird, come up and play a number with us. So we played Royal Garden Blues, and when he started to play the blues... Everybody turned around. He was so strong and so fantastic, and it just wiped everybody out, you know. One chorus, and that was it, and something you never forget. George, who was the audience that came to Storyville? Boston had a very uh, interesting group of people because the, all of the colleges, Harvard and MIT and Tufts and Boston University, and we drew a lot of the faculty members. They like jazz more than their students, Because the students couldn't come. Uh, There was a 21-year-old law about drinking beer, and and they they just drank at home. They'd go out and get the beer and drink at their parties, but they couldn't drink in public. And so we didn't draw a lot of the kids. And there was not a large African-American population in Boston, but there was a significant population that liked jazz that came out of where Duke and Basie were part of their social life, and we sort of broke a few barriers down in that respect. We drew uh, an audience, a lot of older people. They came out of the swing era. They, they liked jazz. Still very, very similar. Today, jazz draws an older audience. doesn't draw a lot of young people. And so we started the uh, Storyville Jazz Club for young people. So we had a young crowd. And some of those people that joined, at those days, I still run into. Now they're all getting old. Of course, it's 50 years later. But... <laughs> The years go so fast, it's 60 years later actually. The Storyville Jazz Club became important in the history of Boston's jazz scene and it was very important in my life because I learned my trade at Storyville. I met all the artists, everybody worked there, Art Tatum, Charlie Parker, Dizzy, Miles, Duke, Louie, Ella, Sarah, Carmen. Billie
1: Holiday gave one of her last performances at
0: Storyville, didn't she? Her next-to-last performance was at Storyville. I, I had been in Europe, because I had started doing business in Europe, I, and she'd been there the whole week. I came back, and it was a Sunday, and she was doing an afternoon and evening, 20-minute, 20 25-minute performances, 2 in the afternoon and 3 at night. And I sat the whole day, and I went up to her after and Billie, I can't believe it, you sound... Like you did 20 years ago, it's just fantastic. What's happened? She said, "I'm straight now, man. I'm straight. You got to help me. You got to help me." I said, "Well, good. I said, look, well, I'll get, I'll call Joe, her manager, agent. And I said, we'll do Newport." And two weeks later, she was at a club called the Blue Moon Cafe in Lowell, Massachusetts, and I wanted to go up and hear her, but uh, Father O'Connor had gone up to hear her. Father O'Connor, Catholic priest was the jazz priest, a very close friend, a man I love dearly. And he says, don't go, George. She had just gone so down in those few weeks, and after she finished in Lowell, she went to the hospital, and that was it. Tell me about the Newport Jazz Festival. How did it come into being? Well, one night, a woman from Newport, Elaine Laurelard, came in with a professor from Boston University. She was auditing some classes at Boston University, and the professor, Donald Bourne, was a friend of mine. And so he introduced me, and Elaine was saying that Newport is dull in the summer, and and they tried something the year before with the Boston Symphony, or the New York Philharmonic, I guess. And they'd lost a lot of money, and maybe they could do something with jazz. So Donald Bourne says, why don't you ask George to do something with jazz? And so she said, well, I'll come back with my husband. And so she came back with her husband at three nights. I couldn't believe it, because people are always saying, you know, we'll come back and talk about it. And they uh, said, yeah, we'd like to do something. And I said, well, let me think about it. And I, I, I went home, and I thought about, you know, Tanglewood has a music festival, classical music though so Why can't there be a jazz festival? And I went back and told them, and I gave them an estimated budget a concept. And they uh, authorized me to draw $20,000 out of his bank in Newport. And then they went to Capri for their vacation. And uh, it just happened. We broke even the first year and never had to use that $20,000, never had to draw on it, and business for the rest of my life.
1: We're so used to jazz festivals now that I think it's hard to remember that you were really the first to produce an outdoor, multi-day, multi-venue jazz festival.
0: Well, I received that APAP award, which was for changing the directions in which people listen to music in the summer, you know, and uh, I was very appreciative of that award, because when we were doing things, you didn't realize we were pioneers. We weren't going by a book. We were writing the book as we went along. Nobody had ever done these outdoor festivals the way we did them, and learning about sound, learning about how to uh, work with communities learning all the little things that are par for the course now. We had to create them as we went along. We learned about outdoor sound. We learned about crowd control. And one thing led to another, and then we did the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. I started the Newport Folk Festival and uh, next thing I know I had a non board. Pete Seeger came up with the idea of all the musicians, no matter whether they're Bob Dylan or Joan Baez or the Georgia Sea Island singers, everybody got $50 a night. We had seven or eight of the greatest music events that ever happened. They weren't jazz, they were folk, but they were just fantastic events. And- so all of these things are part of my life. And then out of the folk and jazz festivals, what came the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. Which is huge. Yeah, because uh, I just combined the two together. So those are all a few of the things I've done in my life that have had meaning. It's why I was appreciative of the award, because as you say, people almost forget. They don't almost forget, they, they forget. They forget. So it's nice to be recognized. But the point is, it's all nice to be part of history. But now I'm doing one of the more important things I've done in my life, and uh, that's turning Newport back into a nonprofit. Because when I went back there in 1962, I, I had to make it a business to keep it alive. But now I turned it back into a nonprofit just last year. Well, the mission is that uh, jazz is an ever evolving music. And if we don't recognize this evolution of the music and the directions that young people are taking, the music is going to die. And we have to give them a stage, and we have to try to build them the image and the reputations of the really talented young players. And so Newport, out of 30 artists, 20 of them will be young, relatively unknown musicians. And it's a big risk on our part because we're not using any big-name performers to sell the tickets. We're selling a festival. We're selling a festival of jazz and what is happening today, but all jazz, not crossover music. And I'm very excited about it because I'm getting to know all the young musicians. I have them up here for lunch, and we talk about Newport and what it means and hope that they feel it's important to their career. And the more important they feel Newport is, then the more important Newport is. And I was very pleased to see that we were number one in the uh, Jazz Times poll for the best festival this year. So congratulations! that made me feel good again to be back on top, you know. And, but that's because of what we're doing. And we have the advantage of the fact that uh, it's not a business and my board is willing to go along with me and... The fact that I'm putting in money along with them, the profit is not the direction. Just putting on great festivals is the direction we're going.
1: 1956, the great Duke Ellington performance at Newport gave Ellington's career a huge boost. It got him on the cover of Time magazine.
0: That shows uh, why the passion for jazz is important. I, I was very passionate. To me, Duke Ellington was a god. I did not know that Duke Ellington's career was on the wane. I didn't have the slightest idea. To me, he was Duke Ellington. I didn't know that he was having career problems, and I just treated him as the star of stars. And uh, he called me two nights before the festival, actually was when the festival had started, and said, what's happening up at Newport? It was a Thursday, and I says, a lot of people coming, a lot of the press are gonna be here. I said, what are you gonna play? He said, well, we'll do the medley, do it. I said, no, you better not do that. You better come in here swinging. I said, because everybody's gonna be here and you better come in with something happening. And I guess that's when he went in and he came up with the uh, reminiscent tempo with Paul Gonzalez. And once he started to play, he saw the crowd start dancing and he kept it going. And, and the excitement just kept regenerating itself more and more and more and more and more and they kept playing 27 choruses. first happening at a, at a, at a jazz festival. was a real happening. Duke used to say ever after that, I was born at Newport in 1956.
1: You had said that you'd never seen a crowd that
0: enthusiastic. You know, at that point, everybody got up out of their seats and started to dance. The crowd was well-behaved, though, but Duke knew how to treat the crowd. When he did finish Finally, I wanted him to come off the stage. He wasn't about to come off the stage. This was his moment. But he had Johnny Hodges play a a slow ballad, and the crowd just settled down. And boy, did I learn from that. You were very close with Duke Ellington. I had the opportunity to work with him. There's a book, Every Day in the Life of Duke Ellington, and I went over that book. So they got the booking sheets, I think, from Associated Booking, and listed every event he did in the last 20 years of his life I was involved with Duke on 365 different occasions. In other words, at 1 20th of his life, his last 20 years, I was directly involved with and we became good friends. We trusted each other, which means he trusted me because I always trusted him. He was somebody you could trust implicitly from a performing point of view. There was never any uh, possibility that Duke might not perform because something wasn't going right. He he would say, I don't care what the problems are or what if I get paid or I don't get paid or one thing is wrong or another thing is wrong. I'm going to do my program because people have paid to come see me and I'm never going to let them down. A lot of other artists didn't feel that way. So if Norman Grants would bring in if the piano wasn't just right for Oscar Peterson, he'd cancel the concert. If something was wrong, he would not do it. I, I would never do that with an artist. To me, you, you straighten out the problems and you don't work with the guy again, or you just, you know, whatever it is. But there's a dedication to, to the music that is absolutely necessary. And as a performer, I'm the same way. Because when I was a kid, playing in some of the joints, sometimes the pianos were half-tone out of tune. And I had to play everything transcribed in the, in the wrong key, and I wasn't that good but you struggle through and you do it. Hey, what's the difference?
1: Why do you think the Newport Jazz Festival, the granddaddy of all festivals, why do you think that festival originally was so successful?
0: A lot of these things relate to destination. I always wanted to go to Newport. I'd never been there. I'd read about the summer cottages, the breakers, and the elms, and there was a fascination about going there And I never had driven down there. It was a little out of the way. It was 70 miles from Boston. It was near Providence, but there was one bridge and the other side. You had to take a ferry. There were no trains, no planes. Went to Newport. And you had, as I say, pay a toll on a bridge, or you had to take a ferry. You couldn't get to the island, you know, no way to get there. So I said, this will be a good place for a jazz festival.
1: Also, one thing that was unique about Newport is that you had musicians playing different types of jazz. It wasn't a festival of one particular type of music.
0: Well, back in the uh, 50s, there was this uh, division in jazz between the swing era and the swing musicians and this new music that Dizzy and Charlie Parker had created, bebop and modern jazz and Lenny Tristano. And there was still this strong fight. And in the very first festival, I put Eddie Condon, who represented Chicago jazz, Gene Kruper and Billy Holiday, the swinger, Teddy Wilson, on the same program with Dizzy Gillespie and Lenny Tristano and Lee Konitz. And it was the first time people had done that, of just say jazz. And people, I'd say jazz is a music from J to Z. I always had that feeling. I didn't realize we were pioneering. I knew what my club was. I had many different attractions in the club. One week would be Martin. the next week might be Lee Wiley with Bobby Hackett, and then the next week might be Count Basie, and then Art Blakey and Horace Silver. And So I knew all the musicians. I liked it all, and I was getting to know and learn more about music all the time. Finally, if you could make three wishes for jazz, what would they be? It's tough to ask me that because I realize most of my hopes and wishes and I keep thinking of new things. So now I just want Newport to continue after I'm gone. I have no family, particularly and uh, whatever I have. I am going to leave towards an endowment for the festival to continue and if that endowment is matched by my board and by friends, the festival will go on forever, at least for the next 20 or 30 years. That's the main wish that I have. The young people who want to play the music, there are thousands of young people coming out of schools. I mean, this is what people dreamed of, to making jazz part of the educational system. It is part of the educational system. And I think remarkable things are going to happen. But my wish is very personal. that Newport continue after I'm gone. George, thank you so much.
1: And thank you for everything you've done for jazz.
0: Well, Thank you.
1: That was legendary jazz impresario and 2005 NEA jazz master, George Ween. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. The following excerpts were used courtesy of Sony Music Entertainment. White Heat, written by Will Hudson and performed by the Jimmy Lunsford Orchestra. From Lunsford Special, Jimmy Lunsford, 1939-1940. to When it's sleepy time down south. Written by Clarence Muse, Leon René, and Otis René. From Louis Armstrong, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, 1923 to 1934. Diminuendo and Crescendo in Blue, and I've Got It Bad and That Ain't Good. Both written by Duke Ellington and performed by Duke Ellington and his orchestra. From Ellington at Newport, 1956. The Artworks Podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. You can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, Air Force veteran and poet, Lynn Hill. To find out how Artworks works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. <laughs>